to another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadow's weekly cyber threat intelligence and information security podcast. This week, I'm joined by Nicole and Ivan. How are you both doing? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure, as always. So it's been a busy week in the world of CTI. And to kick us off on this podcast, I thought we'd start with everyone's least favorite topic. And of course, that is ransomware. So in the past week, the security community, I guess, collectively groaned at the prospect of the return of the Revil ransomware group, which I'm sure you'll all remember went offline in January of this year, following a law enforcement operation conducted by uh, the FSB in Russia, uh, which at the time was, was really quite surprising given many of us um, I think all had the same sentiment that Russian authorities were willing to kind of look the other way on ransomware activity, uh, as obviously they they didn't target companies that are based in kind of Russia or, or ex-Soviet satellite states. And a number of Revil's members, you know, notably, you know, those likely involved in the money laundering side of the operation, uh, were arrested and the, the group actually went underground. Um, but less than four months later, they're back. Uh, although I think the specifics of their operation um, is open to debate. Um, so we'll start the, the podcast by, by talking about Revil. Um, so Nicole, tell us, you know, what's new about this Revil operation? So the Revil operation appears to be back. Whether or not it is actual, the actually the original members is unclear. The ransomware variant that they're using does appear to be uh, Revil. However, uh, there is a slight update um, the samples that have been analyzed, it appears that it's the malware after encryption is appending the file extension, but it's not actually, or sorry, not encrypting. It's not encrypting. So typically it would encrypt and append you know, a file extension to the end of the file. It's not doing that. It's just and adding the file extension at the end and then going through the process as if there was a full encryption. It's showing the ransom note that's identical to the previous ransom note that was used by the Revil group. The Revil blog has been emerged. It came back online. The original one was online for a short period um, and people were concerned. They're like, I thought this was taken by the FBI. Is this a trap? What is it? Who is behind it? But now it's actually redirecting to another site that is identical. It has previous victims listed. It also has some new victims listed, which makes me think it's probably, you know, not the FBI. It's probably threat actors. Um, And since the old members that were arrested were more of, like you said, on the financial side, perhaps this is, you know, other members that were more on the development side or, or things like that. So if, if they're not conducting actual attacks and not encrypting, you know, networks are kind of just, would you say they're masquerading as, as Revil or they're masquerading as committing a legitimate attack? Is that, is that what they're doing? It could be. Right now, I feel like we don't have enough evidence because when a company gets hit with ransomware, they don't typically like to share that information. So we only get information from the variants that are analyzed and released, you know, into the wild. It could be that, you know, it was a compiling error. Maybe they compiled it. This was an error. um, And maybe it's been adjusted since. However, we don't have that information. It could also be someone masquerading and using that Revil name. We know like last year, Prometheus came into the scene and they had that tagline, you know, a group of Revil, and it's really just for that intimidation factor. So both 
both could be uh, possible. We just, we don't have enough evidence right now. I see. And what details do we actually know about the, the members who were arrested in the, the law enforcement operation back in January? What's happened to them? So I believe they have actually been released. Um, it's difficult to say whether they're actually a part of this um, new operation or not, um, because we haven't seen really the extortion side of it and, and seen you know, the similarities between them. So it's difficult to say, but I, I think that they have been released um, from that incident. Sure. I, I mean, I did see that the, the return of Revol almost coincided with um, there was a, a line of dialogue apparently between the United States and Russia on kind of cybersecurity matters. Um, and then obviously with everything that's going on in Eastern Europe right now, you know, relations between the US and Russia, are, I, would, I would imagine many people would say um, at an all time low or extremely bad. Um, and with this, this kind of line of dialogue on cybersecurity matters closing, you know, that, that coincided with, you know, Revol coming back into operation. So, you know, I just thought that was quite a coincidental thing, really. Um, you know, have you got any other comments about, you know, how do you think their return might impact the cyber threat landscape, generally speaking? So I, I was I was mistaken. I thought they had were released. Really, they were denied bail is what it was. Okay. So my apologies on that. I uh, wrote that down wrong. Um, so those members, it seems like they are probably not part of this new operation. However, we've seen with the Conti leaks, you know, they've gone through excessive you know, exposure and they just keep trucking along. So this could be the same situation. This could be, you know, one arm gets chopped off, three more arms, you know, grow. So it's extremely con concerning because this was a very sophisticated group. Um, it doesn't appear that any of the actual malware developers were uh, targeted or uh, identified and arrested. So this can mean that it's going to just continue to grow. They might even look at, you know, what is Lockbit doing? What is Conti doing? And learn from their mistakes, which is even more concerning um, because it's just going to get more sophisticated. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that question, doesn't it? You know, does ransomware activity ever really go away? Do, do, do these groups ever really go away for good? You know, they always kind of seem to resurface in some fashion. Um, Ivan, have you got any thoughts on this particular group's return? You know, they never really go away, have all these affiliates from different groups. I remember that, uh, I don't know if it was Alpha V, that the, when they were, they were created, they mentioned that they had members from all the way back to when Maze was created. So these affiliates have been ongoing for many, many years. And it's, it is surprising that they're still uh, deciding to relaunch Re Revo because that's a very old brand that's associated with a lot of law enforcement activity. But uh, definitely, if it is actually their real return, then it's a significant development in the threat landscape. Sure. Yeah, these are professional cyber criminals, right? You know, in a, in a part of the world which, at least up until January, we, we kind of thought they were, they were free from prosecution, or at least they uh, would be very unlikely to be prosecuted. So really interesting that they have, have returned. Um, but I guess it's still early days, and we'll have to see what happens. Uh, about this particular group going forwards. So moving from cyber criminal activity to nation state activity, researchers have identified a new cluster of malicious cyber activity tracked as 
Motion Dragon. I'm going to say Motion. I probably mispronounced that. Uh, motion potentially. Motion Dragon targeting telecommun telecommunications providers uh, in Central Asia. So, Ivan, could you tell us more about the specific campaign and the threat actor that's conducting it? Sure. So this campaign was conducted by a Chinese cyber espionage group uh, that was called Motion Dragon. And uh, the group, they used the software distributed by security vendors uh, to sideload uh, two pieces of malware. And they were called Shadowpad and PlugX. So the threat group, essentially, they tried to hijack software from security companies such as Semantic, Trend Micro, Bitdefender, McAfee, uh, Kaspersky, and then uh, the researchers, they also observed that this group, they went through a lot of, you know, trial and error phases during their attacks, which was unusual. And they were trying many different things just to, to deploy their piece of malware. And eventually when the threat actors, they got access to the, to the networks, uh, they attempted to move laterally and then to exfiltrate data. And uh, like you mentioned, this was a campaign that targeted the telecommunication organizations uh, within Central Asia primarily. Yeah, I guess if they're conducting things in a, a trial and error fashion, that really just highlight that, you know, these, the persistence of these groups, you know, they will just continually come back until they are successful. Um, you know, the P and APT, they're definitely putting it in there. Does um, Motion Dragon have any kind of association to other Chinese groups? You know, how are APTs within China typically organized? So the researchers, they observed uh, a lot of over overlap between Motion Dragon and other Chinese threat actors. Uh, primarily Nomad Panda and Red Red Fox Rot, and uh, both of those threat actors they have been observed using the same pieces of malware as Motion Dragon. Uh, however, the groups they had significant differences still, so they decided to follow them separately. Uh, and as far as how APTs in China work, these APT groups in China they're known to share a lot of TTPs with each other. So it's not really a surprise that we're seeing a lot of overlaps with this incident. And uh, this is particularly visible when we're talking about nation state threat actors and espionage groups from China. Uh, they, they share a ton of tools and TTPs. And uh, even though they may be separate groups, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of collaboration between them. Uh, they all work towards a common goal. Absolutely. And you know, of course, you know, attribution is one of the most difficult things that we do and kind of specifying it down to, you know, even a, a geography is a, a particularly difficult thing, but, you know, to an actual actor itself is, is very hard, particularly when they do share all these techniques and, and types of uh, tool sets and, and things of that nature as well. Um, so obviously we're, we're spending a lot of time um, talking about the, the ongoing, ongoing war in the, in the um, east of Europe. Uh, which we'll be touching upon um, shortly. Does the activity from Motion Dragon fit with any kind of um, geopolitical issues affecting China, or is this kind of routine activity we should come to expect from these sorts of groups? So this is pretty common, act common activity for Chinese espionage groups. Uh, the tools are very flexible and effective, and there's highly likely multiple Chinese APTs that are using these TTPs to target organizations all across the world. And it's always possible that these espionage campaigns are tied to geopolitical issues. But at this time, we don't really know what the exact motivations are for the group. But it's highly likely that they are uh, motivated by a continued effort at increasing intelligence on foreign countries, specifically in Central Asia for China. Sure. I suppose if they made their, their motivations clear, they wouldn't be doing a particularly good job. So uh, 
yeah, I guess one that that one will will come in time. Uh, that level of information. Um, okay, thank you very much. Uh, we'll move on to the the last item I'd like to discuss today, which of course is the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, um, and the cyber activity that's uh, accompanied this conflict. So, of course, as you know, we've we've seen in the first two months. Um, you know, I think the security community has been quite surprised by what's gone on so far. Um, although the situation is, of course, rapidly changing every week. And with Russia likely recalculating their objectives towards uh, a new renewed offensive in the, the south of Ukraine and the east of Ukraine, um, they'll likely also have recalculated their objectives with regards to the use of cyber as well. So, Nicole, could you give our audience a, a roundup of what Russian cyber activity has targeted Ukraine this week or indeed elsewhere? So this week, um, actually in April, uh, Mandiant came out with a report. It was a multi-month investigation that they have now attributed to APT29, which, which is a Russian espionage group. Um, the attacks are phishing attacks that seem to be dropping a new tool, which is being tracked as B-Drop, as well as uh, another tool called Boomic, which is being used to, um, once the initial access is is uh, been once they have initial access, they're using this to move laterally in the environments and gain persistence. What's interesting about this attack is they're actually using uh, Trello, which is a project management board uh, that is a tool from Atlassian. They're using it as a C2 server to evade detection. So it looks like it's a legitimate API call, but really they're using it to go get, you know, other commands, scripts, and malware to download into the environment. Um, and they are targeting government entities um, in Ukraine, other parts of Europe, the Americas, as well as Asia, um, which is very concerning um, from an espionage point of view. Sure, yeah, it's, it's that combination of kind of custom malware and then living off the land techniques by using legitimate tools, you know, the, the kind of hallmarks of APT activity that we've come to expect. Um, we've also seen, you know, some pretty incredible reporting on supposed cyber penal battalions, and that's not something I ever thought I'd say, um, with IT specialists who have been convicted in Russia, apparently rounded up to work in Russian domestic companies. Ivan, what on earth is this all about? Yeah, you know, that's a really fascinating story. Uh, there are many reports claiming that Russia, they were planning to recruit IT specialists from prison uh, to work on domestic commercial purposes. So this would essentially be a sentence for forced labor, and they would only apply to IT-related roles. And uh, this is likely the outcome of a, shortage, of a shortage of IT jobs being filled in Russia. It was reported in March that there were close to 100,000 vacancies for IT jobs in Russia. And they're also expecting many IT workers to leave Russia over the, over the next few years. So they're trying to find a solution to contain the shortage. Yeah, really fascinating, isn't it? I can't imagine it would be a good thing to do though, to have someone from you know, a, a criminal background, you know, potentially running your security. And you know, how would you feel if you're, you're a, an employee in one of these companies and you find out your sysadmin is you know, a guy who's been convicted of, you know, criminal offences, and then he's been kind of brought in as almost like forced slave labour. It just seems like a really ill thought out thing for them to do if it does actually turn out to be, you know, correct and the reporting is correct. Nicole, have you got any thoughts on this particular one? You know, I, I was really surprised when I read this reporting. It's a bit concerning. Yeah. Um, especially since, you know, I mean, we've seen the capabilities a lot of, of you know, 
at least the ones that have been publicized of individuals that have been, you know, incarcerated in Russia with those capabilities. Um, it, it really goes to show like potentially where they're at, you know, um, are they desperate for workers because of the shortages, but also, you know, where does that leave the threat landscape as far as, you know, I mean, look at the individuals arrested for Revol. Like, are they going to continue to be, you know, uh, utilized for their skills? Um, it, it It's a bit concerning, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they'll get a few more arrests going on ransomware affiliates and then have them working down your local shop to sort out their IT infrastructure. It's really strange, isn't it? Um, the past week has also seen, you know, a really significant report from Microsoft detailing Russian use of kind of offensive cyber in Ukraine, which... Again, as I commented earlier, I think we're all kind of surprised about. Um, we definitely anticipated a, a much greater tempo of activity against Ukraine. I, I think, you know, ultimately that came down to kind of an intelligence failure on their part. I, I think they anticipated the war would be over a lot quicker than it has, uh, you know, dragged on for. And as a result, maybe they didn't anticipate they would need to use kind of destructive malware in this approach because they would have had to have, you know, a hand in the government, uh, you know, after the war was over. Um, albeit for a proxy. So, you know, Ivan, Nicole, you know, what did you pick up from from kind of reading that Microsoft report? Uh, and what are your thoughts about how the cyber battle space has played out so far? You know, uh, like you said, there we did anticipate a much greater tempo of activity, uh, but they're definitely doing a lot of work on their offensive campaigns. And it seems like they're going after a lot of destructive type of attacks and campaigns. Uh, I believe that Microsoft said that 40% of the destructive attacks that they observed they were aimed at critical the critical infrastructure sector. So they're clearly going for attacks that are likely to cause the most damage. Uh, but maybe they opted to go with quality over quantity, per se, uh, similar to big game hunting, where ransomware groups, they are less attacks, but they're going after more high-value targets. Absolutely. Yeah, critical national infrastructure is, yeah, again, the first thing we kind of thought, you know, when we looked at what was going to happen from, uh, a cyber perspective in Ukraine and Russia, that's what they're going to hit, which they've done in 2016. They've done, you know, throughout the conflict, um, you know, following the, the invasion of Crimea. You know, I remember the the use of Indestroyer against Kiev in 2016. That resulted in a, a blackout. Um, Nicole, have you got any thoughts on this one? It, it is really concerning, especially from Ukraine's point of view, because, you know, just as Russia is short on, you know, uh, their infrastructure. Ukraine is also probably feeling it as well as they are in the middle of a, a war. Um, so defensively, it is concerning for Ukraine. I know that CISA recently came out with similar warning for the U U.S., you know, targeting critical infrastructure and, and really laid out all the potential threats. Um, and it does seem like Russia does have the capabilities, you know, that we're seeing now in Ukraine to ha to have these types of destructive attacks. So I think not only is it concerning for Ukraine, but it's also concerning for other countries as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, with that expanding scope of, of you know, that attack surface of potential countries, um, you know, if, if you've had, you know, two months of this conflict ongoing, uh, maybe get some additional controls in place or start looking at your threat model and identifying, you know, where your weak points are and, and making progress on mit mitigating those particular risks that are coming your way. Um, that definitely would be, uh, would be my advice going forward. Um, thank you so much to both of you for your contributions today. Uh, we'll end here. Um, just quickly to mention blogs. Uh, this week we have a blog detailing the one-year anniversary of the Colonial Pipeline incident, covering exactly what happened what changes have been reflected on the cyber criminal landscape, 
and how they might impact the risk uh, for, in, for ransomware in the future. Uh, that's it for today. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.